I have to decide, you know, I want to respect the autonomy of you and your two relationship. I don't want to get in the middle and it's, it's not really my business, but now this person is stressed and this person needs support and I'm put in a very difficult position. So even if the men weren't feeling the need to be aggressive or to fight or anything like that, they were feeling that they couldn't be close to the metamor because of, of the conflict that was brought into the relationship. Oh man, yes, gosh. Yeah. I know up all so of it much. is like. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Content warning. If you're happy with the same old ways of dating, if you enjoy sucking at communication, and you have no desire to improve your romantic life, then our podcast might not be for you. But if you want some out of the box ideas to deepen your current relationships, broaden your sexual horizons, develop a better understanding of yourself, or learn more about non monogamy. So we are here with Dr. Alex Bove. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. So you initially reached out to us because you performed a qualitative study um, specifically on metamor relationships between men. And that's something that hasn't really been studied before. And before we get into discussing the findings of your study, which I'm super mega curious about, I wanted to ask first, why study these relationships? You know, is it just because no one studied it before? Like what motivated you to study this in particular? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, in part, yes. Uh, it's one of the things you have to answer in any study is what's the gap in the literature that you're filling? Mm -hmm. And there, were, there, were, there was a gap in the polyamory literature, in the uh, men's literature, and there is no metamorph literature. Um, at the time that I did this, there was nothing in the scholarly literature on, um, on metamors as metamors. Uh, huh. There were some studies on, there's Jillian Derry's book, which you're probably familiar with, um, Love's Refraction. Mm, yeah. Okay. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't read it, but I have heard of it. She studied uh, uh, queer women in Toronto. Oh, cool. Uh, and she used the term cohorts. Instead uh, of metamor. Instead of metamors. Interesting. Huh. Okay. Uh, so there's that study and then nothing else. So mm. part of it was just, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a scholar and it's really cool to be groundbreaking. Right. Um, <laughs> part of it was, you know, I've been interested in masculinity. I mean, that's, that's my sub area within human sexuality. So I knew I wanted to study something related to masculinity. Um, and, and part of it is just being a man myself and being in relationships mostly with um, women who have been dating men. And so I've had a lot of metamor relationships and, and I, I wondered, you know, is my experience similar to other men's? Is it not, you know? Um, so it was also to satisfy a little bit of my own curiosity. Yeah, totally. Right, that makes sense. No, that's, that's so interesting because I find myself, when I work with clients, I find myself over and over and over having to remind people like when they're either having a difficult time with their metamor or they just don't even know how to talk to their metamor or the, they're surprised that they have a great relationship with their metamor, just reminding them of the fact that like, like no one has written the script for this yeah. uh, culturally or socially. Like we're all just trying to figure out this particular relationship as it's unfolding, which is both terrifying and also exciting at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I found was, as you might expect, 
talking to 24 different people, I mean, there were a lot of things they said that, that didn't match up. And there were certainly themes mm-hmm. that we can talk about. But, um, you know, uh, anyone who's been around polyamory long enough knows that everyone kind of has a different story and a different structure. And, For and, sure. And, and, yeah. No one wants to pick one label. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so actually with that, that's a good segue into, can you give us just um, a, a brief description of what was the study? You know, how, how was it done? What, what were you trying to determine? Uh, and then we can kind of get into more of the results of that. Yeah. So um, because it was a qualitative study and because, so I, I used phenomenology, which we don't have to get into, but I used phenomenology as the um, phenomenology, meaning I am studying the phenomenon of male metamorph relationships. Mm. Right. And when you study a phenomenon, you generally ask a couple of very open-ended questions. So my two central questions were, (laughs) here's a, here's a really academic question for you. (laughs) How, how do polyamorous men describe the characteristics of their lived experience of metamorph relationships? How do they describe their experience? That was one question. And then what are the socio cultural influences Mm -hmm. on those relationships? Um, That one was harder to tease out and I didn't have great, data on that. And that will probably be the next study. Um, but I wanted to at least leave the door open, you know, for that second question. Right. That Um, makes sense. Great. And so, uh, and and just give us sort of the, the, you know, who, who did you study in this study? And it was like, they wrote an essay or like you talked with them and recorded it or how did, how did it work? I'm just curious. Yeah. So actually it was really, it was really interesting. Um, usually in a, in a study like this, you, you sort of find people that you want to interview and then you give them a demographic survey and mm. you say, Oh, you know, l- let me make sure I know all of the char- characteristics of my sample. I kind of reverse engineered it. I sent out a survey, a demographic survey to, poly- to polyamorous men at about oh. 400 men who responded. And from those 400 men, I chose very, very specifically like, um, to try to get racial diversity, age mm. diversity, socioeconomic diversity, educational diversity. Um, and I, I think, uh, this is going to sound a little like bragging, but I think I got the most diverse non-monogamous sample yet. I mean, it was, Great. It was good. I mean, I, you're always limited by the people who are willing to talk to you. Of course. So, yeah. You know, that was, that was a limiting factor. But I only had about 62% white participants, mm. which according to the stats on polyamorous people, that's, that's, there are supposedly more, although I think there are reasons why that might not be true, but Mm. anyway. Well, yeah, we, I was actually just talking with Ryan Witherspoon who we had on our show, I guess six months ago or nine months ago or something. Um, and I was talking with him about doing studies and he has kind of the same theory where he's like, I think actually, polyamorous people in general are not as white as the studies say they are because of the way we get study participants mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's yeah, a constant and, and struggle. I mean, with any marginalized community, it's always difficult to recruit. And yeah. so, and when you have multiple marginalizations altogether, sure. it can be even more difficult. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, and then, and so then from that sample, I, I contacted individual men who were willing to talk to me mm. and some of them were face-to-face interviews. Some of them were local. Uh, or I, I drove to Delaware or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, and then a, a lot of them were actually done via, via uh, zoom. Okay. Okay. Oh. Like a video chat. Nice. Yes. Right. Yep. 
Got it. But they were so they were all like verbal though. They were all speaking, not not them like writing it's not answers to questions thing, in yeah. an online form or something. No, it was very important to me that it was a sort of a face to face interview. There were very open ended questions, um, interaction. Um, I was very upfront about my status as a polyamorous man, you know, et cetera. And so it was it was, it was very much it was very important to me that that was the kind of study that it was. Right. Cool. Right. And then. So I, I'm sorry. I just have lots of questions about how these how these studies are done. Oh, it's um, fine. It's 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 fascinating. <laughs> so with when you when you're talking about a qualitative study like this, where it is sort of open ended questions, I think when most people think about studies, they think about the things they read in you know Cosmo or Men's Health. That's like a new study shows that 63 percent of men you know, think about birds while they jerk off or, you know, something, <laughs> right? Just heavens. like absurd. <laughs> um, Where did you pull that one I don't out know. of? I, I'm a great at improv. Okay. Um, Good job. They, uh, you know, yes. Like and a, <laughs> that it's like a statistic of just kind of like a yes or no sort of question or like a, how many sort mm-hmm. of a question. Um, and so with something like this, like, how do you go about like getting results out of a study that is just a whole bunch of words that someone said? <laughs> You do a very long process of coding. Um, You transcribe all the interviews, or if you're me, you pay someone to transcribe all the interviews. Of course. Um, And then you load those into a program. I used something something called InVivo. Mm. Um, And you, you, you start reading and you look for themes. And when you see a theme, you create something called a node, which is basically, in the old days, that you used to actually... Um, put a piece of paper and you would, you would, you would cut, cut your piece of paper up and your transcript and you would put them in a folder or something. But nowadays you actually use, you know, the, the database. Um, so I, so for example, I created, I would create a node. Um, um, what was one uh, experiences or, or activities uh, with metamors. And mm. then I, I would notice that several people said, oh, I like board gaming with my metamor, or I like, you know, hobby type things. So, I, so every time they would say something hobby oriented, I would highlight that coded into that node. And then later on, I could just look at a node that was, you know, hobbies. And now I would have like 15 interviews where people had talked about their hobby. Huh. And then I could look at that as a discrete unit. And then when I mm. reported the data, I could just report out of that, out of that unit. I see. Got it. Does that cool. make sense? Yeah, so it's kind of looking for like repeating things people say, stuff that overlaps between them, that that way of like finding those results. But ultimately, it seems like it has more of a human component instead of just crunching numbers. Mm-hmm. Kind of yeah, like, and and yeah. and it's 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 recursive. So um, I started out with X number of I don't remember what it was nodes, and then as I went through the interviews, I kept finding more patterns, and then I had to go back to the earlier interviews and code more things from those into those new nodes. And so I had to do the whole thing. You know, I had to go through every interview maybe three or four times mm. to yeah, really make sure that I that I'd covered everything. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, getting into the actual like abstract, you you broke down the process of men's relationships to their male meta- metamors into like three different phases. You said, and the first one was becoming a metamor, um, and then being a metamor, and then also contextualizing their metamor relationships. So, can you kind of talk to us about the significance of those three phases in your research? Yeah. So, I needed to give kind of a a narrative structure to everything because mm-hmm. it was just so many different quotes and stories and I wanted to sort of frame it. And so, yeah, the, so the becoming the metamor, the, the argument that I'm making is that there's a process of social learning. 
Um, it's a process of assimilation into, in, in a lot of ways, a new culture. Mm. That, yeah. That, yeah. That, yeah. Like Dedeker was saying, like a relationship type that we don't have a script for, that exactly. we haven't done before. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and we'll, and we can talk, I really hope we can talk about, and, and, and a set of different masculinity norms. Mm. This is the really important mm-hmm. thing. So there, so there's this process of becoming where you're, you're entering into the polyamory, into polyamory communities and you're, you're, you're seeing how they operate and you're, you're, you're finding how you can sort of assimilate into that. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of, you know, becoming process. And then the being process was just all the experiential, you know, positive experiences, neg- negative experiences. And the, the crux of that, which, which we can spend some time on is the, I asked men, you know, what are the things that make your metamor relationships run smoothly? And what are the things that cause challenges? Yeah. And there were, cool. and there, there was a really nice list of those, which I actually presented at uh, Atlanta Poly Weekend. Nice. Um, so cool. So cool. Yeah. So there, so that, and, and then the contextualizing is where the, again, the masculinity piece comes in and sort of, um, and this is really cool. This was the, one of the best things about the study for me was that, um, the best analogy for metamor relationships is in-law relationships. Really? Interesting. Yep. I mean, that and makes sense. It does, it does, it does kind of make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So without prompting, I, these, these men would say over and over again, it's like your cousin, you know, who does this, or it's like your sister-in-law or it's like your brother-in-law or he's like a brother-in-law. And so, and, and then when I, when I got into the in-law literature, I I saw all of these parallels and I said, and family systems literature. And I said, wow, you know, this is, this is exactly what's happening here. Um, so that was the context. And then the other context, the other important two contexts were the masculinities context. And then a little bit of contextual stuff around like identities that individual men had and how that intersected with their experience of polyamory. Okay. I have two things that that prompted me. (laughs) So the first one um, I was going to ask about, there is a line in your abstract where you make reference to men's ambivalence to the process of assimilation into polyamorous culture and often non-voluntary relational networks is consistent with the findings of family systems and social learning theories. And is that what you're referring to with kind of like the in-law a uh, parallel that you found? Yeah. So there's this scholar I found uh, named Morserowitz. The Morserowitz is their is their last name. It's not hyphenated. I don't know what the origin of it is, but um, they did this amazing work on um, in law relationships and how it's a triangular relationship. Mm-hmm. So if, so if you imagine, um, let's use a um, let's not be heterosexist. Let's say <laughs> two me- two men. Okay. Uh, who are, uh, no, no, let's, let's make the man, let's make a male person be an in-law. So let's say two, two women are married and, uh, one of the women has a brother. Okay. So you have, so the person who, uh, has the brother is the, is the sort of hinge of the triangular structure, right? Right. They have, they have a familial relationship with their brother. Mm-hmm. And and their their spouse has to enter into that family system and sort of mm-hmm. integrate and assimilate into that family system. But similarly, they're creating kind of a new family system with their spouse, and yeah. so the in law has to assimilate into that family system. Mm-hmm. And 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 if you if you could think about polyamory, that that's kind of what happens where you know I have a I have a partner and then um, I have another partner and the 
the way I do polyamory with both people might be different. The, the extended poly, poly networks of each of those people might be different. And so there's a process of sort of anytime you have a new metamor, there's a process of a, a trying, at least we would hope, to assimilate a little bit into mm-hmm. their you know, norms or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But it's ambivalent. And I love the word. I mean, I... This, I'm sorry, this is terrible. This sounds really bragging. I don't mean to brag, but I, I, I love how rich the word ambivalent is because to be ambivalent is to hold both things sort of equally, right? Mm, yeah. It's to be ambivalent, to have uh, an equal amount of valence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really what it is for men. Over and over again, what I would hear it wasn't entirely positive. It wasn't entirely negative. It was this in-between, Hmm. Um, and, and, and they would get there. And once they got there, they were quite happy, but it was a difficult process. Yeah. And that's what the, that's what the family systems literature says about in-laws. That's really interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Just, yeah, because from initially reading your abstract, I'm like, well, Alex just found a bunch of, you know, guys that do this really well and perfectly, <laughs> but, but the reality of the situation obviously is that that's not necessarily the case and that you are going to find people who have a deep struggle with their, their metamors, regardless of whether or not they are male or female. But I guess oh. I was just wondering about that, like in terms of your findings, if you did have people who really did struggle with it and then therefore, I don't know if they were outliers in your um, research or, or what that was, or if it was kind of, you know, everyone sort of had both at times, both good and bad times. I closer to the second thing you said, Mm -hmm. close, closer to everyone had both. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and when we get to talking about those, those, um, challenges and, and smooth metamor, um, interactions. That's one of the things that I found. One of the ways that I coded that was that there was, there were two things that I called, um, unidirectional or unipolar. Like they, like one of them was only associated with the, the smooth metamor interactions. And one of them was only associated with the sort of challenging metamor interactions. Mm. And then all the other ones, I think there's six, maybe five or six. I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I I'm, I'm, pulling them up as we're talking, but anyway, (laughs) all of the middle ones, um, could go either way. And so, um, and, and I, and I got stories of either or both from all, from, from various men. And some men, you know, told me about, cause they didn't just talk about like one metamor relationship. Some of these men had many, many metamors. Right, right. And so they'd say, well, you know, with this metamor, you know, this element, this aspect worked really, really well, but then there was this other metamor and it really didn't Mm -hmm. work well at all. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to get to my second thing that I didn't get to <laughs> earlier, <laughs> yeah. which Sorry. Is, but it actually, I think it's something that all three of us are wondering, which is like, can you share some of those tasty treats about, uh, you know, the traits of smooth metamor relationships, traits slash strategies combined with, you know, the traits that crop, crop up in the not so smooth metamor relationships? I would love to. That's, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I, so one of the things when I thought about this research and, and how I was going to present it to the world was, you know, I, the things I need to present to polyamorous communities are these almost do's and don'ts, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's what everyone and then, wants. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's true. And, and so, yeah, so we can definitely talk about that and I'll, I guess I could go, I'll try to be as brief as I can. 
Or I um, guess we did a whole presentation on yeah, this. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the, well, let me, I could just focus on a, a few of the big ones. Sure. Right? So yeah. the absolute hundred percent number one, and it may sound obvious, but it, but it, I don't, I don't think it was so obvious is, um, having a sense of shared purpose. So whenever, so being on the same team, absolutely. Yeah. I kept hearing that phrase over and over again. Mm. Um, so people said things like, um, uh, Ali said, these, these names are not, these are just, sure. I gave everybody pseudonyms. Uh, sure. Ali said, uh, we would, we would do things collaboratively and in the background to mm. communicate with each other and say, Hey, a, a was the mutual partner. A is having a bad day. Uh, if you've got space, why don't you give her a call or drop in mm. or she's having a rough time. Why don't you stop and pick up that mint chocolate chip ice cream that she really mm. likes? Mm. And so, you know, I heard over and over again, men saying, you know, if, if we're on the same page, if we have a common goal, uh, being to take care of our mutual partner, that's when they get along really well. Yeah. Mm. That's great. Right. Yeah. Wow. yeah that is a so big that's, one. Yeah. That's the number one thing. And then not to get, not to get off too much on this, but, but, but we are going to get there. But this is also the trait to me that most defies the masculine norm mm. oh, gosh, around. Yes. Yeah. 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 Gosh, and, we'll, and, we'll, and we'll get there. Yeah. We yeah. will get there. Yeah, yeah. We will get there. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so, so shared purpose, common values was another that, that when people had common values, you know, like for instance, um, uh, it was mostly around their definitions of polyamory. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people would say, you know, um, we both had the same ideas about, uh, having, uh, polycule meetings every few weeks, or oh, we, wow. we, we all had the same notion about, you know, whatever it was. Or similarly, um, one person said, he's, I'm a city mouse. He and I don't get along or he and I don't get each other. Oh. Right. Mm, okay. Uh, we we align well for our mutual partner's interests, but we don't understand each other. Mm. Interesting. Sure. So that was the opposite of that. So you have yeah. you could have common values, or you could have an incompatibility huh. that would cause challenges. I see. Interesting. Interesting. I see. And, um, and and in that example, that was kind of a a point of difficulty. Like a that. little bit. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he said, he said they didn't fight about it, but it just, it, it, what it prevented them from doing was having the kind of closeness that this, this, per, this participant wanted. Mm. Mm. Got it. Got it. Right? That makes sense. Um, and then open communication versus sort of closed communication. Sure. Mm-hmm. That was over and over again, right? If the communication was good and open, that was positive. It, it, but mo- a lot of the conflicts were caused by poor communication. And when you say open versus closed communication, can you just, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, they, they specifically said things like one, one guy actually used the word closed door and open door. Interesting. Uh, okay. Having an open door policy, having a closed door policy or uh, one, actually one, one guy said something amazing, which, which he said something like, well, you know, um, a guy can, a guy can yell and scream and call you a, a jerk. Uh, I won't use the four, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, expletive, but you know, call you a whatever. Um, and he's communicating with you, but not really in a in a, in a way that's that's productive. Yeah. Right. right, right, right. So, so maybe open and closed is not exactly the right dichotomy, but 
Um, but more about like effective communication versus non-effective communication or like willingness to communicate versus Mm. unwillingness. Yes. Using the, using the triforce of communication versus. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if someone name dropped that in your study, then you got to let us know. Cause (laughs) Oh yeah. I don't think they did. Well, I think my study happened before that episode. Before that. Uh, Okay. Got it. Got it. Well, okay. That was uh, yeah. I love that model by the way. Oh, oh, thank well, you. Geez. <laughs> Shucks. Thank you. Uh, really Much quick while we're still on this, um, along the same lines is like, what was maybe the, unless you've mentioned it already, but what was like the biggest trait or like the, was there any kind of common through line that you saw particularly with people who really struggled in their metamor relationships? Yeah. So again, it was, it was kind of the reciprocal of all of these. So yeah. it was, it was not having shared values, not respecting each other. Um, one person, Jacques, Jacques was really amazing. Great, great person, uh, uh, very insightful. And, but he told this story that made me really sad, which was that he was, you know, he was just like watching Netflix or something in his house that he shared with his partner and his partner came home with their other partner uh, one of their other partners right. and the two, the, apparently the two of them just kind of like sat down and just ignored jock, you know, mm. huh. and he kind of felt like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm a stranger in my own home. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he just felt disrespected, you know, he yeah. felt, um, he felt that he wasn't considered. Right. And so that was sort of, so, so lack of consideration, lack of respect, um, lack of similar interests in life or similar hobbies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, um, whatever the relationship dynamic was with the mutual partner, uh, it, again, it may sound obvious, but that had a, that could have a very strong impact. So if, um, if, and it wasn't, it wasn't so much what you might think, which is you might think, Oh, well it's like overprotective white knight kind of crap. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it wasn't really that it was more. Um, and in fact, what, what I heard more than more than not was it was just a struggle because okay let's say for instance um okay jace in this example you're my metamor uh-huh. oh, oh boy. Right. and and you're treating you know you're 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 arguing with the mutual person that we're dating and right. it's just you know you're not a bad person but you're just you they're their their relationship with you is is stressful and now I have to decide, you know, well, I want to respect the autonomy of you and your two relationship. I don't want to get in the middle and it's, it's not really my business, but now this person is stressed and this person needs support and I'm put in a very difficult position. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so even if the men weren't feeling the need to be aggressive or to fight or anything like that, they were feeling that they couldn't be close to the metamor because of, of the conflict that was brought into the relationship. Oh man. Yes. Gosh. You just <laughs> I know up all so of it much. is like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Content warning. I apologize. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, no, but yeah, I, I definitely can relate to that. And I, I feel like a lot of people, both male and female, totally. just yeah. from the people who've talked to us, like can, can relate to that feeling of, of like, I don't want to be opposed to this other relationship because that's their business but it's also really hard because I'm not happy with what's happening. Yeah, I feel like I've seen that all across the gender spectrum yeah. come yeah, up. Pretty sure. common situation. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you could also file that. And I had to make choices again for the sake of just putting this together in a, in a, a form that was readable. Um, you could file that under, under poor communication mm. um, in mm. terms of poor communication around the entire polycule. Right. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I see. Because yeah. 
Because I mean, in a way, like, why couldn't I talk to you about that? Like, I, I should be able to talk to you and say, Hey, you know, look, I'm, it's none of my business what's happening between you two, but like, just so you know, I, I feel like there's some conflict and is there anything I can do to kind of help with this? You know, like that, mm. that's a possible thing that could happen. I didn't hear about that happening, but I mean, that could mm. happen. Yeah. 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 Well, that's just such a such novel a, idea. <laughs> well, also such a tricky territory to start walking into. So I understand yeah. why a lot of people wouldn't Would do avoid that. it. Yeah. 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 For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's multi, M-U-L-T-I, at adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast, and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code multi to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. All right. So you've, you've teased this already, but I think one of the most fascinating parts of this study to me is... Um, that you mentioned that some of your findings directly contradict or directly challenge some of the widely held beliefs in masculinity studies. Uh, specifically in the abstract, you mentioned the idea that competition for women is like a core component of all males' relationships with each other, um, adult males at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I wanted to hear a little bit more about that, but also kind of any other contradictions toward kind of traditional whatever it is, whether it's like the, the, the sort of Darwinian mate competition models or, or other more contemporary things in masculinity studies. Uh, I'm really curious about all of that. Yeah. So, I mean, right. So one of my, one of my participants said, um, I don't think you can have alpha males in polyamory, Mm. which I thought was such a great quote. I don't think he's, I don't think he's entirely right, but I just thought it was a great quote. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, and you know, I, I I just want to be careful before we delve into this to 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 um, acknowledge the limitations of the study, right? So, one of the things is that I talk to men who have or have had male metamors, mm-hmm. um, and so already that's a sample that doesn't entirely reflect all polyamory. So, mm. for example, someone who has a one penis policy is not going to be a person right. in my study right. because they because they don't have metamors. You know, yeah, they don't, yeah. Have, they don't male have male metamorphs. No, yeah. no, no metamorphs, metamorphs right. yeah. Right? So it's it's certainly <clears throat> possible that that when I make these claims, and I, I mean, I, I think I'm very careful to say that this is only based on, you know, my sample. But, mm-hmm. um, but 
uh, it's a broad sample. It's a broad geographical sample, an age sample, et cetera, et cetera. But um, so we are talking about men who are at least engaged in a type of polyamory. I think it, I think we could call it maybe the norm of polyamory, but it doesn't include everybody, right? Um, um, so that's important to note. But yes, yeah, so I mean, to me, two of the biggest components of masculine of hegemonic masculinity or toxic masculinity, um, those are not really interchangeable, but let's just use them interchangeably for the sake of simplicity. Okay. Um, um, two of the biggest components are, you know, desire for power and competition. That's mm-hmm. sort of one category, power, work, competition, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second one is emotional, rest- emotional mm-hmm. restrictedness, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and on both of those counts, the vast majority of the men I talked to um, operated under the opposite paradigm, right? Mm. So, so when, in fact, those negative things, the things that were unipolar negative things were things like competitiveness, jealousy, uh, you know, aggression, things like that. The men consistently said that those were the negative if it, when they had negative experiences or challenges, it was due to things like competitiveness, mm-hmm. um, those kinds of things. So one masculine norm that I think the polyamory community more or less subverts is the norm that men should compete against mm-hmm. each other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right? I mean, that seems to be a pretty central, central thing you have to yeah. accept if you're going to do polyamory. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. And, and by the way, the, the really amazing thing is that the men were aware of this. So, so right. they would say to me, because here's the thing. So here's the funny thing. I never asked them questions about masculinity directly. Mm. Right. Okay. I, I never directly used those words, but it came up. And, and when it came up, I followed up, of course. But, um, but so they would say things like, um, there's this one amazing story uh, that Cyril told me about going to a party with, uh, where he met one of his metamors for the first time. And his metamor said, hey, you know, I, I, I really appreciate how relaxed, you know, uh, I'm not going to name the name, but, you know, let's say G, <laughs> how relaxed okay. G is after she spends time with you, right? Huh. Um, He's like, that's really great. I really love that you do that. And then what Cyril said was, you know, I was thinking to myself, um, well, that wasn't what I expected, <laughs> you know? Great. Um, and, and, and Diego told a similar story he, where he said, this is the point in the movies when, I'm, when someone's supposed to get out a gun or something, you know? Right. Someone's like, supposed to punch but, someone else in geez. the face. Yeah. yeah. And, he, and he said, but I didn't feel that way at all. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so, so, so that was the one masculine norm, the sort of competition. And then the other one was the communication, the, the restricted emotions and the restricted communication, which again, when, when the men told me they had challenges, it was almost always things like, you know, he was just so closed off or he didn't communicate well, or huh. he, he thought polyamory was something else. And so he was kind of not you know, with us. He was not, you know, huh. um, Mm. Uh, you know, it, it, a lot of it was due to sort of lack of communication. Mm. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and so those two are the big ones. Those are the two big norms that the literature says men don't have intimate relationships with other men that aren't sexual. And the literature says, I mean, Eve Sedgwick, I, I don't know if you know Eve Sedgwick's mm-hmm. work. The mm-hmm. name is familiar, but I, I'm not yeah, no. sure. It's the theory of triangulation, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. It's the theory that all heterosexual, all bonds between men um, in a heterosexual context, are, the homosocial bonds are actually triangulated through a woman as an object of desire. Mm-hmm. I see. Got it. That, that's what brings Jeez. the men intimacy. <laughs> it's a lot. Right? right. A lot there. And, and I don't think that Sedgwick's wrong, but I think that the Sedgwick model fa- starts to fall a little bit apart in a polyamorous context because right. the rivalry is not there or yeah. doesn't have to be there. Right. 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 Gosh, wow. yeah. that's all really, it's great, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. We're yeah. all sitting here trying to like process everything. Can I, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I want to jump in with another question about yeah, this yeah. before we move on yeah, to the next yeah, topic. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I feel like this is just a whole other potential podcast worth of talking about this, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Um, the concept of uh, the emotional labor that it takes to maintain a metamor relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wondering... Because it seems like my impression from the way that you described the study is that, you know, there's a lot of men talking about, you know, what it was like to suddenly have this relationship with another man, how it feels to be there and like how he contextualizes it within kind of this greater context of of the society and like the culture that he's existing in. Um, Did you get like, did you get anything in your study about men talking about, uh, you know, expending any kind of emotional labor or being proactive in maintaining a good metamor relationship in any way? Some of the men talked about that. Yeah. Um, some of the men specifically talked about, you know, uh, it, 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 one of my questions was, you know, what kinds of activities do you do mm-hmm. and with your, meta, with your male metamors? And, and they ran the gamut and, and one-on-one sort of time with the metamor was third or fourth on the mm. list. So okay. it was up there. It wasn't at the top, but it right. was, it was sort of third right. or fourth. Um, but some of them did. Some of them talked very specifically about like, uh, I made sure that we went out and had a beer together mm. nice. or, or, or I really enjoyed board gaming with him. And in some cases, actually the, the metamor relationship lasted longer than the, the, the romantic relationship. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. In yeah. some cases. Right. I'm just curious, um, um, just because anecdotally, I've I've seen like a lot of women in the polyamorous community get frustrated because they feel like because of how they've been socialized as women, like that they're so much faster to jump to like, okay, I need to put in the emotional labor to make sure that I have a good metamor relationship so that everything's good for all of us. And now my male partner turns around and with his metamor, he's just like, meh, whatever, yeah. you know. Um, and so I'm just kind of curious about like is our, you know, if we look at anecdotal, you know, my anecdotal evidence, is that a trend or do, you know, men who have male metamor relationships seem to be bucking that trend if there's anything that, that was, uh, you know, popping out from the study? I mean, I, I think that there were many examples of bucking that trend. I mean, there were certainly examples that, that support what, what, what your experience is. Mm-hmm. And I've certainly had, I've had experiences that ran the gamut in my own life from, uh, there was a, I think it was Juan, uh, who said uh, it was a friendly indifference mm. Mm. to his metamors, right? Yeah. Which, I mean, it has the word friendly in it. Exactly. You know? <laughs> like, it's better than nothing. It's better, it's better than the, yeah, the right. flip side. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, it, um, and, and so, yeah, so uh, certainly I, I don't want to, I mean, I want to be very careful not to say that I think there's some kind of panacea or that there's sure. no hegemonic masculinity here or sure, that there's, yeah. you know, uh, certainly many of the men I talked to struggled. Mm. Um, but I will say when I, when I'm, when I'm being most positive and I, I, I'm a, I'm a masculinities educator who tries to be very sort of positive and, and, and future looking. Um, 
I would say that even when the men were failing to achieve that kind of intimacy or those kinds of connections, they saw that as a flaw. Mm, interesting. They that, yeah. saw that as they saw that as something to aspire to, and they were often sad. And I know I can again speaking for myself when I have been unable to have those kinds of connections with with male metamorphs, it's it's always disappointed me hmm. wow. because it's cool. it's a kind of connection that I want to have with other men, um, hmm. especially men with whom I don't have, a, 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 I, for lack of a better word, natural reason to have a connection with. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. right. Yeah. I, gosh, I have, I have a couple things. Again, that, that that made me think of. I feel like everything just brings up more stuff we want to ask about. Uh, well, but, you know, we could do a part two. Sometimes, <laughs> right? you know. Don't don't encourage him. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so one thing is uh, that that it made me think about earlier. We were talking about the sort of ambivalence of men toward these non voluntary social relationships, like the in law sort of thing, where there's kind of like a. It's not like oh my gosh, yes, I definitely want this relationship that I didn't choose. And it's also not like a get it away from me. I don't want it, but kind of this like, yeah, all right. I mean, no, take it or leave it. it. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And it just reminds me of something that we've talked about before on our show uh, is kind of this like embracing a healthy neutrality about Mm. things Mm. that like, you don't need to be super pumped about everything, but just obtaining that kind of state of being neutral of like, this is fine. I'm not upset about it. I'm not stoked about it. But like, that's fine. I can, mm-hmm. you know, that's a happy life that I can focus on my happiness. Yeah. It kind of made me think about that sort of parallel that we've drawn with other things, not just metamorph relationships, but mm-hmm. just kind of in, in general about your life and about your relationships and things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. One of my participants said um, he had, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember if I can find it, but he had... Um, he had this quote about what he called squashing out the sex. Um, huh. he, he said, uh, my, I asked him what his feelings were about his male metamors, and he said, well, if my girlfriend had a regular squash partner who she plays with once or twice a week and really likes playing with, how would I feel about them? Mm. I don't know. That depends mostly on how they make her feel. So, you know, and so he talks about like squashing out the sex, you know, yes, this is a person who might be having sex with a partner, but what if they were playing squash with a partner? How would you feel? And if you feel, and if you feel differently, you know, he didn't exactly say this, but I think he would say, you need to interrogate that, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of, that's interesting too. Yeah, definitely. Whether or not you're focusing on the sex part. Cause I know some men who are polyamorous, like the fact that their female partners having sex with other men is like awesome and they want to hear about it. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the majority are sort of like, nah, yeah, okay, I'm aware of that, but I'd rather not think too hard about it. Yeah. Like <laughs> I'm happier if I'm just not worrying so much about that and more about, like you said, how do they make my partner feel? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Is she happy? Is she safe? All that. And yeah. it's and it's hard to know how much of that. I mean, again, let's not get too far afield, but it's hard to know how much of that attitude in a lot of men, especially men who've been raised with heterosexual heterosexist norms in America. Right. Um, it's hard to know how much of that is genuinely how men feel and how much of that is a performance of a masculinity mm. that they think they're supposed to feel. Yeah, right. right. Totally. Yeah. Which That's is the whole trap of masculinity, you know, totally. in of general. Course. Yeah. Definitely. I, I just wanted to mention too, the, the second thing was just that um, something that I've actually heard from a number of polyamorous men, and I've experienced it myself, is that since becoming polyamorous, it's kind of helped 
to kind of open up the doorway to having friendships with men that are not even metamors, that are just part of your polyamorous community. Maybe huh. they're friends mm. of your metamors or just other people you've met within that. But I've experienced this myself that since becoming polyamorous, like I feel like I have more and closer male friends than I had before. Uh, and so that's something I just think is interesting about all of this, this kind of, that maybe it's a way to start questioning and rethinking some of the ways we approach male-male relationships that are not mm. sexual. Interesting. Um, yeah, so and that was that was actually one of one of my you asked me at the very beginning, that was one of my inspirations was, you know, looking at the literature on platonic men's friendships and, yeah. you know, spoiler alert, there's almost none. Mm. Uh. Right? Um and and I don't think it's because men don't have friendships. I think, you know, I think there are other reasons why that's true. But right. um yeah, Anthony said this amazing thing about um he said, uh, one of the things I've seen in my relationships with male metamors is this real exploration of authentic, non-toxic masculinity. I've seen male metamors really be a stepping stone for men to learn some of these emotional skills. That's so great. Cool. Really um, fascinating. Yeah. So, no, yeah. That. so that, um, that reminded me, what you said reminded me of that. Yeah, yeah totally. Absolutely. Uh, this is going to be sl potentially slightly off topic, but something that... <laughs> you talked about enjoying speaking about when, when we were kind of preparing for this episode is uh, the intersection of anarchism and polyamory. So mm -hmm. I was kind of curious if you meant like relationship anarchy there and if your research had anything to do with uh, men who were relationship anarchists, if you, if you found any interesting data regarding that or regarding metamors and relationship anarchy just wanted to kind of ask you about what what you wanted to talk about regarding that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we can we can we might we might need to table that anyway because yeah, it might okay. take us off 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 sure, the thing. But sure. I mean, um, I did talk to some men uh, who identified as something that I would call relationship anarchists. Um, uh, yeah, no, the point I was making, this is just my own little personal thing, because I have like a Facebook page about this, is that is, I don't really like relationship anarchy, because mm. the word anarchy has a lot of connotative meanings I yeah, don't like, sure, yeah. and yeah, I like to keep it, yeah. I like to keep it rooted in anarchism, so I actually use the word anarcho-amory because mm. I just you know, like the idea of anarcho, because mm. there's, there's a history in the anarchist movement of anarcho as a prefix, and I really like to honor that tradition, cool. right? Um, and really the very, the 30 second summary is just um, the principles of um, autonomy, free association and mutual aid, which are three of the core principles of anarchism, I think are three of the best principles guiding any kinds, any kinds of human relationships. Um, mutual aid being the really important one because autonomy and free association are really easy, but in the hands of narcissists, they kind of cause a lot of problems. So, so mutual aid is the one that, with mutual aid, I think, is where you get more caring and kindness and, and empathy and all of those things that you need to make the autonomy and the free association work. Mm. Wow, that's cool. really interesting. Cool. Yeah. yeah, um, and also, oh, unless you had something, Dedeker. No, 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 no go ahead. Yeah, and, yeah. Go. yeah, no. The, the other thing was you you talked quickly about the express model of consent. Tm tm mm. tm. Um, <laughs> and I didn't. We didn't know what that was. I was like, Have you heard of that? Have you heard of that? <laughs> uh, and so I was wondering what that was. If you think that it can help change the way that like consent culture is kind of being presented right now, or if it can just help that movement along in some way. 
Yeah, it's 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 related to masculinity okay. um, because you know. So I'm sure you. I think you've talked about the 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 guess model and the tell model, which are sort of the two. I think you've talked about this, maybe. Uh, you know we have. We have We've talked about fries. Yeah, we talked about fries. other things. I know what you're talking about, though. Yeah. 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 So, so some people have said, you know, guest culture is 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 this um, more implicit culture of. And by the way, I think guest culture kind of gets a bad reputation. Mm. I mean, it's if everybody's doing guest culture, it's fine. Mm. If everybody's doing ask culture, it's fine. Right. You know, it, 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 and, and in fact, people, I've read some articles where people don't call them cultures, they call them strategies, which I actually mm. really like a lot. Yeah. Um, but the thing about asking when, when I, when I think about this in, a, in the context of masculinity and particularly heterosexual interactions, though it doesn't have to only be that, um, is that the process of asking can still create implicit pressure or coercion because a question kind of demands an immediate answer. Hmm. Um, even if the answer is I need some more time, still, I mean, it's rare that you really can say that. I mean, when someone asks you a direct question, you really usually feel that you have to give them an answer, mm -hmm. yeah. you know? Sure. Um, yeah. And so, so I've been endorsing this thing I call express culture, um, which is to, and, and, and again, in a heterosexual context, I would say, you know, charging men with number one, getting in touch with your authentic desire, right? So first and foremost, don't ask someone out because you think being a man means asking everyone out. Mm. Um, don't, don't ask people out to, um, show off for your, your male friends. Yeah. Um, don't ask people out, you know, don't try to engage in sex with people because you think that men need to have sex or want to have sex all the time, or you're trying to prove something. So first just get in touch with your own desires. Hmm. And then step two, express those desires in a non-threatening way. And, and that this third part's related to the second part, get, get your satisfaction from the expression of the desire, regardless mm. of the outcome. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. That's the most important thing. So, and, and the way that I practice this for myself is, you know, l let's say I'm on a date with somebody and I'm having a really good time. You know, I'm going to say, uh, I'm having a really good time. I'm going to express that. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, maybe we're walking and somebody's walking someone to the car. And this is the moment in the, in the traditional date where some, someone might go in for a kiss, which, oh, geez, that just makes me cringe just thinking about it. But, <laughs> but, yeah. but, but it might also be a moment where I might ask someone for a kiss and that could maybe mm. seem like pressure. Right. Yeah. So, in, so instead I will just say something like, you know, I'm having a great time and I just, I've been thinking about kissing you. Like, I just, I can't, you know, I, I really think it would be really great to kiss you. And I just wanted to say that. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Yeah. That's it. That's my job. I'm happy. I've mm -hmm. expressed what I've expressed. Now the other person, rather than facing a yes or no question, now they have the entire gamut of possible responses, mm. right? They can say, yeah, I've been thinking the same thing. Let's do that. They could say, um, thank you for sharing that with me. I'm not really feeling that. They could say, um, yeah, what kissing, I was going to invite you back to my place. You know, they could, they could change the subject, you know, they could do any number of things. And I, I know that it seems like a very small, like semantic move or, or, or something, but I don't, I really don't think it is. I think it's a really important distinction that if we all work on expressing our desires, but being satisfied simply with the expression of the desire, mm -hmm. regardless mm -hmm. of outcome that we're going to have 
a lot fewer coercive interactions um, and a lot more sort of, and also it's a way of building intimacy because mm. I, I have to be vulnerable in order to do this. Like I have to, I have to be vulnerable in order to express something to you, knowing that you might very well not reciprocate that feeling. Right. Right. Um, so it's kind of like a leading with vulnerability, which I see as the antithesis of like a traditionally masculine, yeah. toxic masculine mm. thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not leading with, with toughness. I'm leading with vulnerability. Yeah. Um, and, it, and what it does, and, and, and I've, I've sort of um, workshopped this with people with whom I've had these kinds of interactions recently. And what I'm told <laughs> is that it, it cre- they always say to me, oh, it's so great how you created space to allow me to like you know, lean into you or to mm. allow me to sort of express myself. And, I, and I'm cool. like, that's exactly what I'm going for. Mm, yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think that that key component there of that just expressing it is the end of the agenda of yeah. saying it. I think that part is, in the example you gave, it's like that very small part at the end, but I think that's the whole crux of it. And, and I think that's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm curious to hear if this is something that you continue with kind of what you find as ways to actually teach that part yeah. and like, what are the most effective ways to get that piece across? Cause I think that, you know, when you're talking about this as a way to avoid a coercive situation, I think that's, that's the key, right? Is the like, and I just want to say that and that's all mm-hmm. and, and actually meaning that and yeah. them mm-hmm. believing that you mean that. Right. That's, yeah, I guess that, that is the important part thing, of that. Right? It's them also, be, yeah, them also believing that, yeah. well, I guess it's the same thing. If someone asks you also, is also believing that I can say no right. yeah. and it'll be okay. Yeah. That, that, yeah, that is kind of the crux there mm. and being able to convey that. Is, yeah, one and, of and, inherent and I think struggles. it's, and I think part of it is it's not, when I think about consent and when I think about this model, like it's not about that moment at the end of a date when you're deciding whether, whether there's going to be a kiss, it's something that happens throughout the entire, Mm. the entire interaction with somebody. So whenever I'm with anybody, if I'm having a great time, I'm going to express that. If I'm feeling uncomfortable, I'm going to express that. Like it's, it's setting this whole tone of like, this is what you need to communicate effectively with me. And also by the way, being totally okay with that not being someone else's cup of tea. And like when I have a bad date, like that's pretty much what happens. Like, it's just not, it's clear that they think I'm talking too much or they think I'm too open or too whatever. And it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, I get it. I'm not for you. That's great. You know, I'm glad we found this out now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so we're going to pivot a tiny bit. Can you tell us a little bit about your talk like a man project? Mm. Sure. Um, so Talk Like a Man emerged out of a project for a, a class that I took um, where we were sort of looking at like, well, how do you, you know, how do you make change, right? How do you change norms? You know, if, if you can, how do you change norms? And I, I found, I, I came across this amazing researcher named uh, Berkowitz um, who had this idea uh, called social norms marketing. And I don't really like marketing, but you know, whatever it's social norms, marketing, (laughs) Uh but it's this really amazing thing, which is, it turns out that, um, people behave according to what they think is the social norm. And they're often wrong about what the social norm actually is. Interesting. 
And so and it's called the pluralistic fallacy is what he calls it in his model. Um, and so what you can do as an intervention, and he's done this, Berkowitz and other people have done this on college campuses for binge drinking is a really good example. Oh. So, so if you go to a college campus and you, you survey like, you know, 500 students and you say like, how often do you binge drink? And they'll say, you know, twice a month, whatever it is, right? And then you say, how often do you think your peers binge drink? And they'll say, you know, uh, every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And every the weekend. ones, the ones who think their peers binge drink more will binge drink more themselves. Yeah. And then, and then when you, but when then when you educate them and say, actually, no, your peers only binge drink, you know, on average twice a month, binge drinking goes down hmm. on campus, right? Because they, 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 everybody just wants to be normal, you know, yes. right? You know, one way of saying it. And so that was the genesis of, of talk like a man. So the idea is. I try to present on Talk Like a Man all kinds of examples of non-toxic. Uh, well, I don't really like the word toxic masculinity, but whatever. That's another thing. Like but, maybe non-restrictive masculinity? Exactly. And, and my idea is these... Because the truth about masculinity is that no one lives up to hegemonic masculinity, and everyone knows that, including men. Mm. And... And so what I want to do as an antidote is say, no, actually, look at all these masculinities. Look at how they're thriving. You know, look at how they're proliferating. Um, these are the masculine norms. Or, or maybe there is no masculine norm, right? Mm. As much as I can get that out there, that's what I'm trying to do. So I post articles. There's some videos on the YouTube channel where I interviewed like a whole bunch of different men, you know, trans men, queer men, a whole bunch of different types of men. Um, and then the Tumblr is just everything I can find that's like representations of men of color, um, queer men, you know, white men too, you know, mm -hmm. like all kinds of representations of men. Like one of my biggest things I, I re, what, retumble? No, that's not right. I don't know, whatever you do. Re, repost on <laughs> yeah, Tumblr. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, repost. Um, yeah. Uh, is is this, th this site called Yoga Men, Oh, which is okay. these amazing men doing like the most beautiful poses you've ever seen and the most extraordinary pictures of men in these amazing yoga sort of poses. And it's, it's so the antithesis of, you know, UFC or something. Right. <laughs> right. Sounds great. Um, and, and so just, just putting that out there. So my theory is, and I, I can't prove that this is working because I mean, who, how, how could I prove it? But I mean, I, but, but we know that this can work. The more people, <clears throat> excuse me, who see these kinds of things, the more, <clears throat> the more people start to say, oh, okay, I can step into that. Mm. I can belong to that. Because ultimately what anybody wants is just to sort of belong to a group, just to find belongingness. Right. Yeah. And the, the trap of masculinity is that there is no, group outside of masculinity that has, or outside of like hegemonic masculinity, there's no group that isn't a, seen as a punishment for a lot of men outside of that. Mm -hmm. um, right. One of the great accomplishments of feminism is that it's given women many femininities yeah, that are right. rel relatively equally, you know, you can be, you can have a sports femininity, you can have a political femininity, you can have, you know, different kinds of femininities and, and, and they're, they're not as, they don't have the cultural cachet of the sort of um, makeup, high heels, long hair femininity, yeah. but, but they're, they're places that women can go to. But if you're a man outside of hegemonic masculinity, if you're not queer, like outside of hegemonic masculinity mm. is basically nothing. 
And there's so much fear that men have of not finding a group to belong to that they often cling and to and are complicit in hegemonic masculinity and support hegemonic masculinity, even in all of its horrors, because they're so afraid of being kicked out of the club. Wow. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and so that's, so I'm trying to do everything I can to say, no, no, it, you're still in the club. It's fine. Right. Yeah. You're not going to get kicked out. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, from curating this project, what are the things that you've learned personally about your own relationship mm. to masculinity? <laughs> um, I've, well, I mean, actually, I would say that one of the things I've learned is, um, it's not as much about masculinity, but one of the things I've learned is that I didn't know as much as I needed to know about mm. <clears throat> men of color or, mm. you know, um, queer masculinities or even trans masculinities. I mean, I knew a lot from, from my studies in human sexuality, but um, I've, the more that I found myself focusing on these types of masculinity that aren't, um, that weren't part of my upbringing, um, the more that I'm realizing my own privilege and realizing mm, sort right. of my own, the, the way that that blinds me. Yeah. And so yeah. that's been a, that's been an amazing, amazing revelation for me. Nice. Um, and then, I don't know, I, I would say just, um, the biggest thing for me in, in my journey with my own masculinity is learning that like, it's okay for me to have, um, there were a lot of qualities that I felt or a lot of things I felt a lot of shame for in my life and not, I don't think I did shameful things, but things that I felt shame for. And I've learned to sort of reconcile those things and see them as not positive things to ascribe to necessarily or aspire to, but part of the enculturation of men in America mm. and part of the journey is, is um, st standing aside from them, maybe not fully breaking free, but certainly standing aside and yeah. being able to be critical. Right. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Was that, that was a Byzantine answer. I don't <laughs> no, know. It was good. It was great. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So last but not least, um, can you tell our listeners where they can find more about you and your work? Um, <clears throat> yes. Uh, well, the talk like a man project is, is kind of everywhere. And unfortunately I, I wasn't able to get the URLs I always wanted, but if you mm -hmm. just search talk like a man, you'll pretty much find there's a YouTube channel. There's a Facebook, the Facebook page is a little more of a broadcast, um, medium for me. I, I, I don't really, I can post, people can post, but it gets hidden, but there's mm -hmm. also a group. So if people want to be a little more interactive, they can join the group. Oh, very uh, cool. And, and then is on that, Twitter, is that a public group that people can find? Yes. It's Great. a public page in a public group. And, uh, and then they do have to be approved, but I, I approve, I approve everybody until, mm -hmm. you know, until otherwise no, no, to, right. noted. Um, and then it's T L A M project on Twitter. It's at T L A M T L A M project. Cause I think I couldn't get talk like a man. Mm -hmm. I don't remember. It was weird. But. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I heard that, uh, 
Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons bought all those up. Oh my right goodness. Away. It might be. Oh and actually, it's funny that you say that. The thing that I get more than that is the Steve Harvey uh, Think Like a Man. Right. Oh, gosh, I freaking oh, gosh. hate that book. I hate it so much. Yeah, just, every yeah, single wanna, time I see that cover, yeah. I want to rip that book up in every store I walk into. It makes me nauseated. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> well, on that note, glad we landed there. Yeah. Um, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for sharing all of your findings. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. I was, it's, it's, it's great to talk about this. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. If you want to get in touch with us, send an email to info at multiamory.com or send us a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can also leave us a voicemail at six, seven, eight, M U L T I zero five, or you can leave us a voice message on Facebook. To support our show and join our private Facebook community or discourse community, go to patreon.com slash multiamory. Multiamory is created and produced by Dedeker Winston, Emily Matlack, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.